0: This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Genesis chapter 4. We'll be reading a few verses from here. Genesis chapter 4. And reading from verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What have you done? And the voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you tell the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond you shall be on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground, and I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth, and it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. The Lord said to him, therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken upon him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. Amen. The title of my message today is, Am I My Brother's Keeper? Am I My Brother's Keeper? Cain was the first baby that was ever born on earth and his younger brother Abel was second. What the age difference between the two was, we do not know, we were not informed. But in Genesis 5:4, it tells us that Adam and Eve had other sons and daughters, not just uh, Cain and Abel. And Cain became a farmer, and Abel became a shepherd. Both were the occupations. And we can rightly assume, of course, that Adam and Eve uh, taught these two boys Uh, all about the things of God and how that they had been expelled from the Garden of Eden, the reason for that, and how that God slew animals to make coats of skin to cover their sin. And so they would do their best to remind these two young men uh, to obey God and to do what was right. And it would seem, of course, that Abel listened, but Cain didn't listen. And we see here that God was pleased with Abel's offering, but he was displeased with Cain and his offering. Abel brought a lamb, but Cain brought the fruit of his labors." Now, it may seem a bit unfair, uh, because after all, Cain was just a farmer. He, He grew vegetables. He wasn't a shepherd. And it may seem a bit unfair if you think, well, why in the world would God refuse the work of his hands and yet he accepted Abel's? And so before you think that is unfair, let me just read uh, just a portion of scripture from 1 John chapter 3. You don't need to turn to this. And verse 10. In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil, and his brothers righteous. And so that tells us here that Cain was not right with God. Something was wrong. He was not like Abel. And in fact, in Hebrews 11 and 4, it says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he he being dead, still speaks. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice. So Abel was a man of faith a man who believed God, who trusted God, who obeyed God, who did everything he could to please God and to glorify God. But Cain wasn't. Cain wasn't. Abel was conscious of his sin and he brought forth a sacrifice that was fitting. Just like his mom and dad, God had to kill an animal blood had to be shed innocent blood had to be shed for their guilty blood to cover their sin and so abel was conscious of that and he did the best thing he brought forth the firstlings of his lambs and the fat thereof the tasty bit Uh, later on the priests who would officiate a part of their portion that was given to them of the sacrifice would be the fat thereof that was the good bit and so he brought his best, and he brought a sacrifice which was fitting. Now, if Cain had wanted to, if he would wanted to bring a better fitting sacrifice, he would have bought a lamb of his brother. But he was too proud to do that, and he obviously didn't care much about the things of God, or he would have done something better than what he had already done, just brought the fruit of the ground. And God did not respect Cain's offering. Someone said Cain wasn't rejected because of his offering, but his offering was rejected because of Cain. And there's a difference. His heart was not right with God. And because God rejected his offering, his sacrifice, he got very, very angry with God and very angry with his brother also. The carnal man always opposes the spiritual man. Always. We saw it with Ishmael and Isaac, with Esau, with Jacob, with Joseph and his brethren, with King Saul and David. The carnal man always opposes the spiritual man. Always. Now, God said to him, why are you angry? If you have done good, would you not be accepted? And if you've done the wrong thing, you're not accepted. So why are you angry? Why are you upset? Do you not understand this? And his face, his countenance, had fallen. And God said to him, look, sin lies at your door. It's crouched at your door like a wild animal It's just ready to pounce on you. You need to deal with that. You need to handle this. Because if you don't, serious trouble. And that's a lesson for all of us. Because sin wants to pounce on us. And if we're not careful, we need to handle it. In verse verse 8, it says, Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. The the Masoretic text doesn't say this, but the the Samaritan text says that Cain said to Abel, Let us go out into the field and talk. So that implies that this was something that was premeditated. The killing of his brother wasn't just on the spur of the moment. It wasn't, as what we would say today, a crime of passion. It wasn't two brothers arguing to the point where one committed manslaughter, get angry and hit him just in a fit of pique. No, this was murder. This was premeditated murder. And here we have the first murder that's recorded in Scripture. The first fratricide, the first murder of a brother, too, that's committed, recorded in Scripture. And sadly, murder has never ceased since that fateful day. Every second of every minute, of every hour, of every day, somewhere, someplace, somebody is being murdered. And that legacy of Cain followed right into his very family line. Lamech, one of his sons, was a bigamist and a murderer and bragged about his murder as if it was nothing. And in verse 9, and the Lord said, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? That's the title of my message this morning. Am I my brother's keeper? The first question that God ever asked man was to Adam where he says, where are you? You Remember whenever he sinned and he ran ahead from the presence of God and God came looking for him, and he says, where are you? The second question God asked man is, where is your brother? Where are you? Where is your brother? And so, yes, we are our brother's keeper. There's a connection, and God recognizes that, and we ought to as well. So Cain's answer, am I my brother's keeper It showed a a proud, arrogant, selfish, contemptuous spirit. It mattered not to Cain that Abel was his natural brother. It mattered not that he could have been and should have been his spiritual brother in the Lord. It didn't matter to him. He could care less. You can almost hear the sarcasm and the contempt in his voice as he spits out the words, Am I my brother's keeper? I mean, what right, God, have you got to ask me about him? He's nothing to do with me. I don't care what he does or where he is. Am I my brother's keeper? And God said, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Hmm. Abel's blood was crying out to God for justice. The blood of millions of innocent victims today is crying out to God for justice. There are lots of people in this fair little land of ours, and we see it on TV all the time, who are marching to Stormont, they're marching to the law courts, and they're looking for justice because their loved ones were murdered, and nobody has stood in the dock for that murder. And they're crying out for justice. And let me tell you, they may never get it in this lifetime. Many will never get it in this lifetime. That's why there has to be another life beyond this. For justice. For the sake of justice. One day before the greatest size of God, justice will be meted out. And God will avenge the innocent. And so while people may not get their justice in this life, just as we'll be in the next life, for absolutely for sure. Payday comes someday. Now, as an aside, uh, let me just point something out to you here. When God said to Cain, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground, the Hebrew word here for blood is in the plural. So it literally reads, your brother's bloods are crying out to me. From the ground, so this implies that not only Abel's blood was crowned for justice, but his never-to-be-born descendants. Think of how many descendants would have came from the line of Abel. Think of that godly man and his children and his children's children and his children's children's childrens. Think of the godly line that that would have been that we'll never know, because that life was snuffed out. Do you know? In about twenty years' time, there'll probably not be one single Holocaust survivor. Six million Jewish men, women, and children were cruelly and brutally murdered. Think if they had still been alive and not murdered. Think of how many would have came from their family tree. Think of how stronger and bigger the Jewish population on earth would be today. In 1939, it was about 18 million worldwide. Today, it's about 13 and a half million. Think how many wonderful people would have came from that. Six million, but we'll never know. But their blood cries out for justice. Think of the 4,000 abortions every single year in the UK. 4,000 human beings murdered in their mother's wombs. Think of the families that they had lived that would have came from those little babies. Their children and their grandchildren. But we'll never know. Wonder how many doctors and nurses I wonder how many physicians, I wonder how many inventors, I wonder how many creative people, influencers, I wonder how many teachers and preachers and missionaries would have flowed from those, but we'll never know. Surely their blood cries out to God for justice and one day there will be justice. Our Lord Jesus Christ was the most innocent man who ever walked in the face of the earth, yet he was cruelly murdered on a tree, wasn't he? But the writer to Hebrews said that his blood speaks better things than that of Abel. Abel's blood cried out for justice. The blood of Christ cries out for mercy. Mercy against the perpetrators. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do when they were kneeling to a cross. When his blood was being shed, he was crying out for mercy. Thank God for his mercy today. We wouldn't be sitting here today if it wasn't for his mercy, I can tell you that. So before we move on, let me just briefly just read a little portion of that again from verse verse 10. He said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you're cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you tell the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be in the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Now, depending on what version you've got in your lap you're reading from today, some version says my iniquity is greater than I can bear. If it's simply my punishment is greater than I can bear, it seemed to be, should have been said, my guilt is greater than I can bear. But we didn't say that, but my punishment. But other translators is my iniquity. And if it is my iniquity is greater than I can bear, maybe there was a feeling, maybe there was some repentance. Maybe some remorse, maybe some repentance had come in. Because we know that in the end, God didn't take his life. My punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground, and I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth, and it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. The Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. The Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. We have no idea what the mark was, so there's no good even speculating what that may or may not have been. By the way, that opens a whole new question, which I haven't timed. It's not my message this morning. Where did Cain get his wife and out and built the city? Where did them people come from? Well, Genesis 5 and 4 says they had other sons and daughters. And there's a whole chronology of lineage from all of that that takes period over a long period of time, and there's a population burst and explosion, all the rest of it. But I haven't time to go into that, because that's not really my message this morning. My message is: am I my brothers? keeper and the answer is absolutely emphatically yes you are your brother's keeper I am my brother's keeper whether that's in the natural or in the spiritual we are our brother's keeper and to your brother you can be a helper you can be a hindrance you can be a stepping stone or you can be a stumbling block one or the other that God has given us certain responsibilities and that we are our brother's keeper. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17, the Apostle Paul, writing to the Corinthian church, he said, When you come together, instead of coming together for the better, which he should have been doing, he said, You're coming together for the worse. When you come together, meeting together as believers, he says, you're doing it for the worst. Can you imagine that? He was very angry with them because there were all kinds of stuff going on within the Corinthian church. I often said it's the most charismatic of all the churches of the New Testament, but it was the most problematic. It was full of problems and issues, always issues. And they were falling out with each other. Some were taking each other to court before the unbelievers. And Paul said, you should do that. You should even suffer loss instead of doing that. They were arguing who's the best preacher. Well, I I prefer Peter, you know. I I like Peter because he's big and bold and bright. Well, I I prefer Paul because he's the teacher type. And others said, well, I like Apollos. Apollos is just so fluent. I mean, he's some preacher. And this whole argument was going on all the time. And he says, Paul says, who are you talking about? He says, I planted Apollos water, but God gives the increase. And then they're arguing about their what was happening during what was called their love feast, when they would come together and have fellowship. And out of that feast of fellowship, then they would break bread together, remembering the Lord's death, which is like our communion. Only it's less less formal than what we do. And they were coming together and and the rich people who had much were bringing lots of food and the poor people were sitting beside them and they wouldn't share with them. And some of them were drinking to excess and were getting drunk. Can you imagine getting drunk at church? I think there's bad stuff happens in church today. I think it was happening then too. And so Paul writes these letters and he takes them to task and he's trying to sort them out. Spiritual gifts became a major issue within the, that church. They were boasting of their superiority in the gifts. They had gifts aplenty, but they were short on graces. And so Paul writes to them. And there was another issue, a major issue, and that was with food that was offered unto idols, meat that was offered unto idols. Now a little bit of background here. The the Corinthian church was by and large uh, a Gentile church. Uh, They were Greek. By and large come out of paganism. But there was a mixture of Jews among them who'd come out of Judaism and worshiped together. But as far as the Majority of the Gentile believers, now they had come into the freedom and the liberty of the grace of God, the grace of the gospel, and they loved it. It was wonderful. Particularly from what they had come from, the darkness of paganism, worshipping idols, demons. And so they come out of that and now they had the knowledge of that and they understood the gospel. They understood their freedom and they understood have nothing to do with idols. They mean nothing else to us anymore. Now we're worshiping the one true living God and we've got the gospel of Christ and we're free. But some of them who had just come out of it were still struggling with this business of idols. They hadn't just the full knowledge yet of the gospel. They're saved, but they just haven't learned a lot yet. And then there was the Jews who came out of Judaism, but their problem was anything to do with idols or meat with idols was anathema to them. In fact, even the very food that they ate had to be kosher, had to be cooked certain ways, had to be no blood in it, couldn't be something strangled or something that had been killed by another animal. They had all these rules and regulations from the Old Testament life, from the law. They had all of that and they incorporated that into their Christian experience. So you see there's a lot of trouble going on here in this church. I'm still talking about, am I my brother's keeper here? And so Paul is having to deal with this. And one of the classic chapters, because somebody, I forgot to bring up this other, Gary, see right there at the back, that Bible just sitting there, other translation. Just the odd time I would use this just to, thank you. Because this sometimes just helps to clarify things a little bit for you. This is the uh, New Living Translation. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. I want you to go to that. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is a classic chapter on "Am I my brother's keeper?" Say, so what has this got to do with me? Eat meat offered on the idol? Just hold with me. All right, we're coming to you in a moment, so just hold with me. Chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians. He said, "Now let's talk about food that has been sacrificed to idols." You think that everyone should agree with your perfect knowledge. So you lot that are saved, that understand the gospel, that know the word of God now, that understand you're free in grace, that's who he's addressing first of all. You think that everyone should agree with your perfect knowledge. While knowledge may make us feel important, it is love that really builds up the church. In the King James it says that love puffs up, sorry, that knowledge puffs, puffs up, but love edifies or builds up. So they were puffed up with their great superior knowledge, they felt. And they were looking down their noses at those who were struggling with the whole conscience thing about meat offered unto idols. So it is love that really builds up the church. Anyone who claims to know all the answers doesn't really know very much. But the person who loves God is the one who knows and cares for who God knows and cares for. So now, what about it? Should we eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols? Well, we all know that an idol is not really a God and that there's only one God and no other. According to some people, there are many so-called gods and many lords, both in heaven and on earth. But we know that there's only one God, the Father, who created everything, and we exist for him. And there's only one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom God made everything, and through whom we have been given life. However, not all Christians realize this. Ah. You see, yous who are further down the road with your superior knowledge, who think you know everything, he says, think about the ones who are just coming into this and they're still struggling with some issues of their past, just like the Jews who were getting saved are still struggling with some of the, the ways their food had to be presented. (laughs) <laughs> and they shouldn't have been, but they were. He says, however, not all Christians realize this. Some are accustomed to thinking of idols as being real. So when they eat food that's been offered to idols, they think of it as worship of real gods, and their weak consciences are violated. They're having a problem with their conscience here. It is true that we can't win God's approval by what we eat. We don't miss out on anything if we don't eat it. And we don't gain anything if we do eat it. But you must be careful with this freedom of yours. Do not cause a brother or sister with a weaker conscience to stumble. So in other words, you can't just do whatever you like or whatever you think, regardless of what your brother thinks or likes. Because if we do, that's not love, is said. You see, this is what can happen. Weak Christians who think it is wrong to eat this food will see you eating it in the temple of an idol. Some of them had become so puffed up with this liberty and freedom in Christ, they thought, well, you know what? I could just go along to an idol temple and just eat that meat and do me no harm. He <laughs> says, no, no, no. He says, don't even think that. Don't even get near that. Because he says... Other brothers with a weaker conscience about this are struggling with this. You're going to set a, a precedent for them, and you ought not to do this. You know there's nothing wrong with it, but they will be encouraged to violate their conscience by eating food that has been dedicated to the idol. So because of your superior knowledge, a weak Christian for whom Christ died will be destroyed. Are you sinning against Christ when you sin against other Christians by encouraging them to do something they believe is wrong? If what I eat is going to make another Christian sin, I will never eat meat again as long as I live for I don't want to make another Christian stumble because I am my brother's keeper and you are your brother's keeper. Now, he's not finished with this because in chapter 10 as a lead-in to breaking bread and Holy Communion. Here's what he said in verse 14. So, my dear friends, flee from the worship of idols. You're reasonable people. Decide for yourselves if what I'm about to say is true. If we bless the cup at the lord's table aren't we sharing in the benefits of the blood of christ when we break the loaf of bread aren't we sharing in the benefits of the body of christ and when we all eat from one loaf showing that we are one body and think about the nation of israel all who eat the sacrifices are united by the act what am i trying to say am i saying that the idols to whom these pagans bring sacrifices are real gods and that these sacrifices are of some value no not at all What I am saying is that these sacrifices are offered to demons, not to God. And I don't want any of you to be partners with demons. You cannot drink from the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot eat at the Lord's table and at the table of demons too. What? Do you dare to rouse the Lord's jealousy as Israel did? Do you think we're stronger than he is? Now notice this. You say, I am allowed to do everything. Sorry, I'm allowed to do anything. You see, there's Christians with this attitude now. I'm in Christ. I am free. I have grace. I'm not under the law. I can do anything. Hmm. Listen to what Paul says. You say I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is helpful. You say I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. Don't think only of your own good. Think of other Christians and what is best for them. Because you're your brother's keeper. Here's what you should do. You may eat any meat that is sold in the marketplace. Don't ask whether or not it was offered to idols. And then your conscience won't be bothered. For the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So in this meat, these sacrifices, animal sacrifices, were was used in pagan temples to worship their Demon gods. Then, whatever was left, the priests would get somebody who officiated. Whatever was left, then, would go into the marketplace and it would be sold in the marketplace. Right? So, the ones who had the superior knowledge, who felt I'm free in grace, they would go and all they would just say was well, just a slab of meat. I can eat that. That's not a problem. But others who would look at that and say, that's more than a slab of meat. That was offered onto idols. And maybe there's still some power in idols. And so they had a conscience about that. They, they had a scribble about that. They were worried about that. And Paul says, consider that person who's thinking that. And then he says, if someone who isn't a Christian asks you to come home for dinner, go ahead, accept the invitation if you want to eat. Eat whatever is offered to you. Don't ask any questions about it. Your conscience should not be bothered by this. But suppose someone warns you that this meat has been offered to an idol. Suppose they say to you, do you know what? I got that in the market. They see that piece of meat I made you. That was made to worship an idol. He says, don't eat it. Out of consideration for the conscience of the one who told you. That's why they told you, because they have a conscience about it. It might not be a matter of conscience for you, but it is for the other person. Now, why should my freedom be limited by what somebody else thinks? Ha!" Huh? You know, as the Christians will say this, I'll say, well, it's my business. I'm free to do this. It's nobody else's business. I can do it if I want before God. Now, why should my freedom be limited by what somebody else thinks? If I can thank God for the food and enjoy it, why should I be condemned for eating it? Because you are your brother's keeper. This is what he's getting at. Whatever you eat or drink, whatever you eat or drink, Whatever you do, you must do all for the glory of God. Don't give offense to the Jews or the Gentiles or the church of God. This is the plan I follow too. I try to please everyone and everything I do. I don't just do what I like or what is best for me, but what is best for them that they may be saved. Are you still with me? Are you getting this this morning? No. Before I became a believer and it wasn't very much but I did drink some alcohol when I became a believer I stopped it immediately let me give you the reasons for that first of all if you watch television you'll see odds that says just one drink just one drink will impair your driving ability. Just one. I don't want to take anything that's going to impair me in any way mentally, never mind driving. I don't want to take anything that's going to change my moods. The only thing I want to change my mood is the Word of God, the Spirit of God, but not that. Also, even if I did Continue and say I've no conscience about it. I can do it. But what about those who has a conscience? There is not an alcoholic in this world That would have been an alcoholic if they hadn't taken the first drink not one never would have happened My brother-in-law my late brother-in-law Stood on a hay field when he was 16 years old and the farmer came out. It was a hot day he said and gave them all a glass of beer he says, the first beer I ever drunk. And he says, I loved it. And he says, I couldn't get enough of it. And he went on to become an alcoholic. And was literally dying on his deathbed when God saved him and raised him up and he became a preacher of the gospel. But he says, that one drink. You say, well, I'm not like that. I can handle it. But the trouble is, we don't know who can handle it and who can't handle it. And if they look at me and say, "Well, he's a pastor, and he can handle it. He can take it. So, I, if he can take it, I can take it. it Must be okay for me to take." But that one drink can start them on a journey of destruction. And guess who's going to get the blame? Me. Because they look to me. In a sense, I give them the okay. Why? Because I'm my brother's keeper. I'm my brother's keeper. Presbyterian minister in this town told me he buried a young man in this town who died of alcoholism. He says, I visited him in his hospital bed when he was dying. He said to me, Reverend, he said, did you ever drink? He says, no, I never did. He says, why? He says, because I ragged I might like it. I might like it. And he says, if I really liked it, then I might take it to access. The way he uh, put him in his grave. You think I want to be responsible for that? No, because I'm my brother's keeper. So there may be things that will be lawful for me, but they're not expedient. They may be lawful for me. I may be able to do it without a conscience, but if it stumbles somebody, somebody else, then I'm not being my brother's keeper. I'm not acting out of love. I'm being selfish. And Paul likened that to meat. He said, I'll never eat meat again if it's going to cause somebody to stumble. stumble, I'll become a vegetarian in that case. If if that's what it takes, he said, because I don't want anybody to stumble through my actions. Now, you could extrapolate into any area of your life. But you feel I'm free to do that. Yes, you may be free before God to do that. But if somebody else you know has got a conscience about it, don't do it in front of them. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the greatest preacher in Britain that ever lived, at one time smoked cigars. That was in the 1800s when they didn't know the dangers of smoking of anything. He smoked cigars and enjoyed it. And people said to him, well, you know, you shouldn't be doing that. He said, well, I have no conscience about it. I'm okay about it. And he did that for years until the company that made those cigars found out he was smoking them and they began to advertise them. The cigars at C.H. Spurgeon smokes. And then it suddenly dawned on him: hey, they're using my name to make a fortune out of me. This is wrong. Do you know what he did? He never smoked another one in his life after that. He says, no, never going to do that again. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes, Absolutely. So many benevolent organizations so many philanthropic enterprises came forth from christianity hospitals orphanages children's education charitable works all flowed from christianity don't let any of those naysayers and atheists try to tell you that christianity has never done any good in this world it's, the good that's in this world has flowed from christianity didn't flow from paganism the Industrial Revolution in Great Britain in the 1800s caused great population growth in the inner cities, and the inner cities were absolute slums—Dickensian slums—and and children, just young children, were used like slaves. And as the poet called them, those dark satanic mills. But Christians began to realize, "I am my brother's keeper." and they saw the deprivation, and the poverty, and the drunkenness, because people were trying to access to dull the pain of the horrible life they were living, and their poverty. And they began to say, I'm my brother's keeper, and I'm going to do something about this. And lots of the great organizations that help people came from that. They began to help the poor and the needy. Sunday schools movement uh, began to grow, uh, and it wasn't just it wasn't just teaching the biblical things, which they did, of course, and it was wonderful, but they gave free education to the poor children, who were illiterate, couldn't read or write, so they educated them. In fact, that brought about the Education Act of 1870. That's why it came about, because Christians did something about it that governments weren't doing. And it forced the government into doing something. Temperance movement sprang up to counter the deprivations of of booze and drink. City missions were raised up to the inner cities with the transforming power of the gospel. The Red Cross, the Royal National Institute for the Blind, the YMCA... The YWCA, the Young Women's Association, Christian Association, Boys' Brigade, Girls' Brigade, the RSPCA, even for animals, the NSPCC, Hospice of Salvation Army, Youth of the Mission, Teen Challenge, the Gideons, Societies for the Elder and the handicapped. all these began to spring up in the UK because of Christians, churches doing something about what's happening out there. Why? Because they felt, I am my brother's keeper. Those are just a few of the transformative organizations that began to flourish, giving hope to millions and a new life with meaning and purpose. Am I my brother's keeper? Absolutely, yes. Yes. Jesus fed the 5,000. He put clothes on the demonized man who was running about naked. He gave people dignity and life so because we are our brother's keeper we have to preach the gospel we have to reach the lost we have to be salt and light in our communities in our workplace in our families in our colleges our universities in our immediate families our flesh and blood families we are our brother's keeper and God has given us that responsibility and role to play. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, would you help us today to be our brother's keeper? To be responsible. Actively think of those who are less well-off, who are unfortunate who are struggling in life with all kinds of issues and problems and needs and difficulties. Lord, that we may lend a hand, that we may give something, reach out and bless and touch, share the good news, and give bread to the hungry. And so we give you thanks this morning that you have given us not just the responsibility but the privilege it is that you have given each of us to reach out and to be a brother's keeper. So we give you thanks for this. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal. Or visit our website for more information www.mpc.org.uk